Welcome to the Small Business Surgeon Podcast, the show where we dissect the businesses of top producers, examine their growth strategies, and share with you the bare bones of their success. I am your host, Samuel Smith, and I'm glad you're here. Let's operate. Hey guys, what's up? Welcome to this week's episode of the Small Business Surgeon Podcast. And guys, this week I'm bringing you somebody a little bit different and uh, a little bit special. I have not had a guest like this on the show, so I'm super excited to interview him. He is one of the owners of Grizzly Iron Inc. out of Phoenix, Arizona. And these guys make custom, high-quality architectural ironwork, as long with all those cool things you see on the uh, on the TV there, on the TV shows. So please... Welcome to the show, Jason Labrash. Jason. Thanks for having me, Sam. Dude, I'm super happy that you are here. I've never had anybody that's worked um, in the metal industry on the show. And just going through your website and looking at some of your stuff, I can only imagine you you have the most interesting story because you're second generation at this, right? Your, your dad was one of the founders of the company. Is that right? That's correct. Dude, tell us a little bit about the history of Jason and how you got your foothold in the iron business. Cause this is, it's all brand new to me. I'll, I'll let you know everything I know about blacksmithing comes from uh, the history channel and forged in a fire. So uh, I'm not sure just how true to life that is, but I'm super excited to learn about your journey, mate. So well, yeah. Well, the, the show is accurate. My dad has been on the show and I know quite a few other people that have been on that show. So it's accurate. It is a okay. uh, reality TV, but it is uh it's still TV, but it is accurate. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I, uh, it's a family business. Mm-hmm. So it's uh, almost all I've ever known in a way. Uh, so growing up, uh, you know, my dad actually started the company the year before I was born. And uh, as I grew up, I was working in the shop in the summers and in through school, even yeah, yeah. starting in grade school. I think I learned a well when I was 11 or 12. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that was a cool thing coming into sixth grade, telling kids I knew how to weld. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> you, I'm cutting off your history, man. When I That's learned right. to weld, I think I was uh, I was five or six. My dad at the time, he was teaching, um, he was teaching metal work at a school. And... Um, I got to do some stick welding and I was so excited that I'd done it. Um, I wanted to show my uncle Chris, who was dad's friend that worked in the classroom next door. And as a five or six year old, I immediately just grabbed the piece that I'd welded to pick it up and I burned all across my hand. And I, I can remember my dad standing me in one of those huge porcelain sinks, like literally standing me in the sink and holding me uh, my hand under the water because like I just welded. I wanted to show it to Uncle Chris, yeah. man. So what was it oh, like yeah. learning to weld at 11, dude? Uh, interesting. I mean, you're ex- excited about it for sure. You know, you got, it's a uh, creative and more energy and all kinds of stuff, you know? So first thing I put together was probably this little sculpture with scraps, you know, around the shop. And mm-hmm. I think it's still sitting in the shop in the corner somewhere. <laughs> That's funny. My, my dad still has the bit of the two pieces of angle iron that I welded when I was, when I was five, six, man. It's yeah. My dad doesn't want to toss that one. So no, it's, it, it's strange what they keep. <clears throat> so, you know, what's it like, as an 11 year old with full access to a metal shop was it was it like the coolest childhood imaginable or how was it at times i mean you know it's it's tough i mean you know there's there's pluses and minuses i guess because uh you know with being a small business and at the time you know it was a uh my dad only had maybe a couple employees and you know he was working a lot of hours so um it was uh spending a lot of time around the shop you know um my, uh, my mom actually passed away when I was 13. Oh, so man. I spent a lot of time with my dad. So if it wasn't, you know, at school or, you know, mm-hmm. he wasn't working at the house in the office, you know, we were at the shop or out on job sites, measuring jobs and, and things like that. So it was, you know, it was a good shadowing process just because of that, you know, seeing all the ins and outs and time yeah. spent that a lot of people don't get to see as a business owner, you know, until they're in the, the weeds of it. It, it's kind of like a your own almost like a forced apprenticeship i i mean i remember growing up with my dad it was it was constant going around with him on jobs on weekends and, and learning how to do stuff mm-hmm. um you know 
So you kind of got this baptism of fire by hanging out with your dad uh, throughout your teenage years, right? For sure. Um, Definitely. What else would you have done with your life? <laughs> you know, I've, I've always felt very entrepreneurial. Like I've never really felt like I wanted to go with the flow. <laughs> and, I, and maybe it's just, you know, the, the environment, you know, what do they say? The environment, uh, how it influences you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Cause in, you know, in high school in it was especially during, while I was in high school, it was all about going to college and what college you're going to go to. And almost with no sense of a reason to go to college. And that's what I questioned. Mm -hmm. I always questioned like, why are we, what, what's the plan? Mm -hmm. And, and I looked at it as uh, well, like I can go get a business degree to go be in business. And that's what I want to do in one way or shape or form. And uh, like, well, here's my opportunity to go run a business for, and in the four years, I'm going to probably learn more than I might learn by the book or mm -hmm. a, a teacher. Yeah. Um, you know, so I, I chose to not have all the extra debt of, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it, it's funny, you know, I, I think I'm a, I think I'm a few years older than you, not, not too many. Um, but the emphasis when I was at school was purely on which university are you going to and how are you going to get into it? There, there didn't mm -hmm. seem to be any emphasis on, Hey, you're a little bit different. You don't quite fit the mold. Why don't you go run your own company? There, there wasn't any of that. It was just expected that you did school, you did college, you got your degree, you got your job and off you went into the exactly. workplace. Um, yeah. So, what age were you when you started really stepping up and started taking a role in the operations of the company? Right about 18, graduating mm -hmm. high school, like, you know, out of high school, went directly into the business full time. And uh, I, I guess, you know, straight away, I was working in the shop. And I, it was within a month or two, I was already and I think I already had some like practice, my dad had already given me little assignments on doing estimates for clients mm -hmm. and things like that. And I was helping with maybe writing up invoices and stuff because yeah, I was yeah. better at, you know, yeah. using a computer than he was so, <laughs> in, the, in the evening. So hey, it all, it all counts when you're a family businessman. So, it but, all counts. But then, uh, you know, it just was the opportunity was like, you know, we, we at that point really didn't have much tech involved in our company. So, you mm -hmm. know, really using much for computer or anything. So, um, so, you know, we were emailing in the evenings or something, but uh, didn't even have internet at our office at the time. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, but, but all you need is fire and a hammer. I don't know why. Yeah. You, you know, <laughs> the internet. So, uh, I mean, shit, we're talking, what, 15, 18 years ago. The internet wasn't what it is now. You still had to dial up and you had, had to hear that ringtone and hear and, if the AOL guy had been and left you mail and shit. So and, I can understand why you wouldn't, why you wouldn't it, have that. Exactly. Yeah. So we, we started, you know, and I brought in, we, we saw that route of doing CAD design. So I started taking that on and, and as well as, you know, so doing the designs for clients and mm -hmm. then also doing estimating and starting to just work with clients more directly and just grew from there. Um, yeah. <laughs> now we have about 20 some employees and <laughs> that's a whole lot of employees. Um, and to go from two to 20, you, you must've suffered through some, uh, some real challenges in that growth. Is there any, oh, yeah. is there any roadblock that sticks out in particular that you can share with us? Something that you, you guys really struggled with as you were scaling? Um, uh, cash flow. Of course. <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, I'm something like, you know, like everyone thinks that like everyone else has it better, but I, when you more and more, you talk to someone, every, no one has, <laughs> no. but cash flows um, in cash flows out. That's how it works. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and, and just, and having a better grasp on it and having a system for it. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, it was actually only about four or five years ago, I think that we finally kind of, I feel like got grasped that, like, and like got a better hold on it using the profit first system. That's what I was going to ask. Yeah, that that's the exact system I use, but let's, uh, let's dig into it. Tell it, tell the listeners about it. Cause I know about it, but I yeah, share it with these guys. Cause it, it, it actually changed the way I do business completely. It's, it's, yeah. it's and, fucking wonderful. And so it's basically, instead of working out of one or even two or three accounts, you know, like all the money ends up flowing into one account, like, cause you know, we have an income account, but yeah. the idea is that you take your expenses and you have percentages of that income now that go into different accounts like mm -hmm. buckets. Mm -hmm. um, 
so that as these buckets fill, you have the money for those items when they come up. Um, on, on, you know, one of our biggest challenges over the years was payroll taxes, right, was right. not budgeting correctly for that. Um, Cause that's a huge chunk that, you know, and, and the, you know, as you, as when you're smaller, it's, you know, it's not too much, but then as you start, if you start adding four or five employees immediately, that's a lot of, oh, yeah. it, it's like, it's a, a chunk that you don't expect to pay. Like you don't think of. Um, and so. No, it, it, it sucks. I mean, yeah, my, my CFO sends those over every single week. So I know exactly how much is payroll and exactly how much is taxes. And I, I don't care for it. Um, but like a lot of people miss that. They think they're paying twenty dollars an hour for an employee, but their effective cost is probably twenty four, twenty five dollars an hour somewhere in there. Oh yeah, and and you times that out over twenty employees, that's a huge payroll tax bill that you guys exactly. Yeah, yeah, and, and even as we've used the the model, like I mean, I've tweaked it. That I mean, I specifically have an account for that because I knew we've had issues with it in the past. Like, um, you know, in the book, he lays it out to. Uh, um, to just do for taxes, like income taxes, or, you know, as your you know, corporate taxes. Um, but I found that that wasn't enough. I found that actually by separating our payroll taxes, like our, just our taxes into a specific account, it's, it's a, a big enough, a dollar amount that it, it just makes it so much smoother that yeah, like, I don't even have to worry that the money's there when it's time to pay it because we've separated it. And now we were, you know, we can look at, and even with payroll too, I mean, you have your, you know, I have our net payroll is what we pay in one account mm -hmm. and our taxes out of another. Um, but our expense account for all our, you know, other general expenses is now that's what we're looking at. to when we need to buy materials or mm -hmm. make a purchase for something like we have, we know that that's what we can touch. We can't touch the other money. Exactly. Because if, if you see 50 grand in a checking account, you're inclined to believe you got 50 grand. Yeah. Um, but if, if you see it broken out as a 20, a 20 and a 10, and then you realize both 20s are allocated and you've actually got 10 grand, like you'll yeah. spend, you'll naturally spend all the money you have available in pursuing your dreams and scaling your business. That, that's exactly human nature. Well, and what I love about it too, is it's like, it's like, like almost like in like a, like watching like dials or like a dashboard, you know, even just mm -hmm. looking at the accounts is because you can see how much money you have in the accounts based on what you're used to spending. Like, you know, you can see how much money you need to make in two weeks or a month or two months from now, sometimes, you know, depending on where you're at. So, you know, before, like you'd get down to, you know, 20,000 or $10,000 in the bank and you think you you're doing well, <laughs> but to next, tomorrow it's wiped out from payroll or, you know, or, or just one tax bill. Mm -hmm. And whereas now you get 50,000 or 60,000 or whatever, you know, you get down and you're like, well, okay, I actually need more because I, I see this account's getting low, you yeah. know, and, and, you know, you're not even worried so much about the overall anymore. So it's more just, it, it, how do you fill the buckets? It makes, it makes staying on top of things much, much easier. And it makes yep. knowing what I can afford to spend on stuff so much easier. I mean, For sure. It just, the, the, the model is spend your money as soon as you get it, spend it into each direct account, allocate it where it's supposed to go and don't touch it. And um, the book is called Profit First, and I can't pronounce his last name, uh, but it's by Mike, maybe Michalowicz? Is that Michalowicz, yeah, that sounds about yeah. right. So uh, very, very, very good book. It, it kind of leans on the, uh, uh, the richest man in Babylon stuff of paying yourself first and everything else. So it's a very good, very fundamental uh, book. <laughs> so going back to that and the fact that you guys have weathered a few storms and now have a wonderfully profitable little business with 20 plus employees um why do you think it is that so many small business owners fail i i think it's just part of like giving up too soon mm -hmm. I, honestly it's uh it's just about enduring like honestly on you know and because i mean I, I saw that with covid you know like the beginning of the mm -hmm. pandemic that there was several companies that you know looked very healthy and they just like the day that there was extra things that happened you know here locally like i don't know if that was regulations or you know some and they just decided just to okay we're closing and I, you know I, I a lot of it is just enduring like you know because i 
that's all I could say to it because I mean, I've been <laughs> to the point where you just don't have money and like, you yeah. know, you can just find a way to make it like, mm-hmm. you know, I, mean, um, I, so I actually, uh, about 2012, um, I actually went into the SBA's office, um, looking for some help on guidance on things. And they, you know, they set us up with a coach, um, actually several coaches that came in and came in for free. And these guys had run like hundred million dollar companies and, and, uh, they helped us with some things and getting us some systems organized and things like that. But then eventually like one day he came in, he's like, look, I just, I don't think it's going to work. I think you just need to, you just need to close up the business, go back to school. And, uh, like, I just don't think it's going to work. You know? Wow. Like, Who says like, that? I exactly, <laughs> you know, and I don't know if that was, you know, it, it wasn't exactly a turning point. It still was a couple of years of struggle, you know, to get through some things, but it was, it was like, what? <laughs> but it was also, there was the mindset that this was a, this guy had run big companies. He didn't own them. Right. Right. He had, you know, he had been the CEO or COO or something of a, you know, and you know, some large company. Yeah, you know, it is. Dude, when you, when you run a company, there's always more money. There's always more money. When you own the company, there's not. Um, there's a there's a very firm stopping point that sits on your desk, you know. And that's that's I think the difference between you know the guys that come through college and make it to like CEO, and the guys that come up themselves and make it to CEO. The guys that come up themselves have seen the bottom of the checking account. They've seen the red ink. They've seen mm-hmm. the overdraft, and and they felt the uh, they felt the pain. So, <laughs> yeah. Again, people fail maybe because they quit too soon, huh? I think so. I think it is. I really think that's that's a huge part about it, you know, just persevering. What is the most fun about making shit out of metal? Because I'll be honest, like, I'm a boy, and I love fire, and I love the way it smells in the metal, and I love hitting things with hammers. I mean, are you, are you sitting on the other side of this interview with my dream job? Like, what's the most coolest <laughs> thing about making shit out of metal? It, it all depends. I, you know, it, <laughs> depends on who you are some people really do enjoy it we teach classes a lot and, i saw uh, that yeah i want to get into that here in a little bit yeah the, so, the, the classroom stuff <clears throat> but you know i guess you know our I, I would say our our employees our guys on our team that they what they get out of a lot of it is the finished product and being able you know the accomplishment of of building something yeah um you know and on what we do we you know we try to do the very high quality work so like you know ideally our 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 stuff's going to be around for generations. Right, right. Um, and you know, we're usually doing something that's very unique that just isn't off the shelf or something like that. So, um, so I think that's where our, our team probably gets the biggest result, um, for the other people when coming into the classes, they definitely enjoy beating stuff. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know some, I think it starts out as a, you know, getting that, like, just, it starts out of like, Hey, I can hit something. And like, you know, there's a, it's, it's like working out in the gym, you know, like yeah. you're just getting that, the endorphins from, you know, doing something hard. Mm-hmm. And, and then, you know, then at the end, there's still a result too of something physical. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. So, I've seen these classes with the uh, with the knife making and with the blacksmith and stuff, and it's always it's always intrigued me. I think I've watched every single uh, episode of Forged in Fire with my kids. They they love it. William wants his own forge at the house, and I'm like, yeah, maybe slow down there, buddy. But let's <laughs> say I'm a I'm a very very amateur coming into this. Um, what kind of how long is it going to take me to make a knife in a class? I mean, is that is that like a, a one day class, or am I am I coming every day for two months till I figure it out? So we do have some actual one day classes to make a very simple knife. Um, usually that doesn't have a wood handle on it. It's all metal. Um, the, uh, we, other, we have other classes that are two or three days that are gonna make a more complete knife with a handle and um, all the steps and making something that looks maybe a little more finished. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we, we have classes that are just a few hours of just coming in and learning the very basics of, you know, of blacksmithing. Um, so we have, we have people that have come in, we have a, an event called the thing that we do called our open forge where people come in just for like a few hours in an evening and they use our shop and, mm-hmm. um, we don't teach much, you know, we really don't teach it. It's mostly more for people that are using their, you know, 
working on their own projects, but there are people that do come in once in a while that we give them, you know, they'll, they'll almost start from nothing. And sometimes in a matter of months, they're creating some amazing stuff just with a few hours a week. So that's, that's pretty cool. That intrigues me, man. If I lived closer to Phoenix, I'd probably be popping over a little more often. Uh, to be fair, you know, what's your what's your favorite project you've ever worked on? What's been the most satisfying piece that you ever oh, brought to fruition, man? That is so hard because you, you're a cross between a between a fabricator and an artist, and and it's a it's a very heavy cross. They they they're both intimately intertwined in what you do. You know, and and it's it's a little bit tougher lately because I I even though I work with the clients, I end up usually not seeing the end result too much, you know, cause I'm not, and I'm not also, I'm a lot of, if, if I do have a hand in the design, I'm still actually not even like hand and building it or things like that. So um, I do have like a, a couple projects that stand out that like have been more notable. I mean, there's a, um, actually right about the time that that guy told us to close down, there was a gate we built <laughs> that was a, uh, uh, a gate that we won an, a, a national award for that we submitted oh, nice. to an association. We won an award on that one. And uh, um, I bet that was... felt like a nice big middle finger to the face. <laughs> <that closed down. laughs> a little bit. Is that, is that what yeah. you called it? <laughs> yeah. And then, I mean, we've got another, we've got a pool railing um, that I designed uh, somewhere about that time, maybe a little bit before that uh, had, uh, has, I get, it's gone all over Pinterest and all kinds of things. And so I get calls on it weekly, um, people from across the country. And we've built railings because of that one um, and shipped them to Hawaii, Virginia, Florida, you know, all over the place. So you ship all over the world, huh? Um, you know, once in a while. <laughs> it's, uh, it's getting more expensive to ship anymore. Well, yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, I, guess, uh, I guess the price, what do, you, what do you fuel your forges on, gas? I was about yes. to say the price of coal, and then I realized you're probably not stoking them on coal anymore. <laughs> no, we had, well, we used to use, we, we had a coal forge for years, but almost never used it. Probably um, the child labor laws, you know, having to have the guy pump the bellows, <laughs> get the little five-year-old kid bouncing off the pump. It's just a little fan blower. <laughs> just turn the little switch on it. It works. I mean, it's, it's, it's a, a lot more tedious to manage a coal fire. So we use propane for our forges that makes a lot of sense i remember when i was a kid going to church the organ at the church had hand pump on the bellows and one of you had to stand behind it and pump it and it, it was a big deal when they got the electric switch for the air pump. <laughs> <laughs> man i'm showing my age now aren't i <laughs> oh <laughs> so on your journey now like what would you say the biggest failure that you overcame was to get to where you're going now, to get to a company with 20 plus employees and multi-million dollar revenues. What was the one big thing that, that really gave you the hardest time? Uh, 100% is the manager money, managing money mm -hmm. properly. I mean, you know, like I mentioned the payroll taxes. I mean, I've been through the ringer with that one, so. Uh, yeah, we t we did touch on that before. That's my bad. I was trying to pull lessons out of it, but you're exactly no, right. No, I mean honestly, I mean yeah, that's been the toughest struggle. I mean, you know, so I mean it's it's one that I think uh, some people like you know you I thought you know kind of that oh I'll just pay them eventually, but no, that doesn't you know, and that's you know you know you know it's like a it's a thing that no pay those on time. I think there's, there's I think we've all thought wait. that. <laughs> I think we've all thought that though, you know, just exactly what have you contributed to my company, Mr. Taxman? You know, we, we've all thought that obviously we all know it, it can't work like that. Yeah, um, yeah. but for me, hiring a fractional CFO was one of the best moves ever. Cause I don't got to mess with it now. He just sends me a, a, a report every two weeks and I know what to do when, and it, it's so much, so much easier. That's um, not, at the, I haven't done that yet as the CFO. I've got a very good bookkeeper and uh, in another in-house bookkeeper as well that handles a lot of our, you know, payroll and things like that. But I definitely, that's going to be soon is looking into a CFO that can help us plan. And you're already, that. you're already in the right room, pal. I know, <laughs> you know, there's, there's plenty of people in there that can, uh, that can help there. Um, well, shit. I want to know a little bit about your continuing education. 
because learning for guys like us is a lifelong pursuit. So with the exception of the Profit First book, um, what are some of the most impactful books that you've picked up and read along the way? And are there any that you can uh, can share a few bits of wisdom from? Hmm. Let's see. The I always think that like one of the best ones is The Magic of Thinking Big is a great book. I'm going to write this down. I, I steal my, my book, guest book suggestions. And I go read them all. It's, it's, a, it's like a life hack. You don't, yeah, you don't have a podcast. Would, you just collect books. The Magic yeah, that of Thinking great. Big. I, I, I honestly, I'm, I'm not sure if I can, I mean, it's just got a lot of great examples of things. I can't, I can't think of anything in uh, particular from that book. Um, but the, another book is uh, Who Not How mm. is another great book. It, it, it helps reframe, you know, I, I thought I understood delegation prior to reading that book. And I think it gives you a, def- a better perspective on that, mm-hmm. um, on how, you know, how sometimes it's, it's really more about the people than, and, and really, and goes into another book I'm currently just finishing up is the speed of trust and just in trusting people and how that, how that is so critical. Um, and I, I'd say that book is really, really great. The speed of trust. Um, That's a difficult one. Though. A lot of entrepreneurs struggle uh, to trust just because of how, just because of how poorly that trust has been abused in the past. Um, was there anything in that book that stood out to you that enabled you to trust a little more freely with your employees? Because we've all got the nightmare stories of trusting an employee with too many logins or too many bank account passwords or any of that kind of stuff. And we've all got those stories. Um, I'm not so sure. I mean, I don't. Part of it, and in and the book doesn't really say this directly. I think this goes into other books and other people we know about. You know, talking about core values and about how, like, if the core values in your company are correctly aligned and the people are aligned with those values Mm -hmm. that you should easily be able to trust your employees um you know uh, you you would think (laughs) (laughs) you know and but then some of it is is giving that you know extending trust at times can can encourage you know it it, it's reciprocal um oh absolutely so yeah if you don't if you don't extend it you know it's the yeah. Well, if you if you don't if you don't extend the trust, it can it can never be properly uh, properly grown. Mm-hmm. But again, it can't be abused, you know. And I, I know a lot of entrepreneurs struggle with letting go of that responsibility and empowering their employees with the trust. What was something that you did to to help empower your employees, and how did you get over that initial shock of kind of letting go of the reins and and giving them things that you trusted them to do? Um, some of it is just legitimately letting, like letting them go and letting them fail. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and you just, you just kind of have to just step back a couple times, (laughs) you know, (laughs) you know, and, and, you know, and help them up when they fail and, and, you know, and, you know, you just, it's not going to go perfect, you know, so. It rarely does. (laughs) No, it rarely does. I mean, I totally get it. Um, it just like, for me, it. I struggled to ever really give that level of trust until I was I was forced out of, uh, forced out of work for a couple of weeks. And when I got back, I realized that nothing was broken, and it took an actual act of force for me to let go of that. And you know, it was very very scary at first. I'm glad I did. Obviously, mm-hmm. it, it paid off dividends, but. Um, I've been in situations before where I've trusted employees and, and, and not had core values in place. And I think before I discovered the core values, I think that was my biggest uh, biggest failure point was <clears throat> thinking on the surface we were maybe aligned, but really deep down we weren't. Mm-hmm. And so uh, now we all run our companies off core values. So I'm gonna put you on the spot and maybe give you a second to reach for your note card if you've got them written down. But share with me just uh, two or three of the core values you run your company on over there. Look, he's reaching for a note card. He must, he must have a note down. We just, we just uh, redid, we're updating them here. Wonderful. And, uh, um, 
actually make sure I got the wording right here. <laughs> and because uh, we're having some shirts printed with so all our guys will know our core values every day. So, Put them on a show. Uh, yeah. so it's uh, we take ownership. Wait, hold on. Never mind. Wrong ones. Old ones. <laughs> so, anyways, uh, okay. So we're, we're gonna we have integrity. We work with intent, and we are measured on results, and we're capable to do the impossible. Oh, I like that one. I mean, everybody's capable to do the impossible if they try hard enough, right? Yeah, and you know that one. I I really like. You know. That one I really liked because I mean, we've uh, that's a lot of what's I think kept us in business is that we, we don't turn down challenges mm-hmm. too much. I mean, you know, people come to us with a very difficult project that for some reason a lot of other people turn away, and so we, we take on the challenge of figuring out how to solve it. Um, uh, that's really kept us actually probably in business through all like through the recession and right right other issues it's it's having that reputation and of being able to fix stuff on the fly and being able to do stuff that uh, no one else can quite produce right mm-hmm. so yeah what's what's your favorite thing to make because i'm scrolling your website and you've got everything from tiny little intricate copper bowls to massive pool and stereos to some beautiful beautiful one and two thousand dollar custom damascus knives what gives you the most great what gives you the most joy uh to actually produce yourself what's your favorite thing to make around the shop personally myself mm-hmm. uh i actually like to make damascus the actual pattern in the steel so tell me about that because i'm i'm, I'm aware that there's several forms of damascus and i know that you have to cover the inside of the canister with white out <laughs> that's one way to do it in a if we if you do in a canister damascus that's so uh, the one the one time that one kid used paper towels and they were like what's he doing that'll never work and it worked flawlessly like it worked better than a white white out it just went popped right out it, yeah I, I i don't know <laughs> well so yeah so there's a um the very, the very basics of it is that it's truly called pattern welded steel damascus is just a very generic term that people use from of the location of where it possibly came from. Right, right. Um, so we're taking two or more different kinds, like of alloys of steel, and we are stacking them in some form, usually in some some different layer, like mm-hmm. kind of like a sandwich. And uh, but usually we'll have you know fifteen or twenty layers or something like that, and um, and we alternate those alloys, which give you the contrasting colors. Mm-hmm. Um, so that is heated up to a critical temperature and, and hammered, you know, pushed together so that those layers of steel become one. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's forge welding in that process. So, and then usually that's done several times of restacking it to get it to a higher layer count. And then it's patterned in different ways. So, so what, um, what's the main reason for pattern Damascus? Is it specifically because it looks absolutely beautiful or was it a way they found of combining metals into an alloy that made stronger and more versatile blades? Well, this is going to be a fun one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Shit, I've, I've got a metallurgy expert on my show. Of course I'm going to ask you. I would not call myself a metallurgy expert. I do know those guys. <laughs> you, 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 you're better than me, mate. <laughs> so it, tr- it truly is for the decoration I, okay now um there's better performing steels and there almost probably always has been almost for in the majority of history i'm so disappointed um, so but the the best explanation for damascus actually being created mm-hmm. um was uh, i and i i don't remember if the romans or the greeks or something there was you know there, there's another kind of steel. Um, now I'm blanking on the word here. Um, Just <laughs> uh, make it up. We, actually, don't, we don't fact a, check. We don't fact check a, on this show. Actually, a lot of people call it woots. Um, or there, there's woots, and then there's also tamahagani, which is the Japanese form. But like there's woots, which has like a little crystal structure if you kind of look at the steel itself. Mm-hmm. Actually, like you look at it, and it has like a pattern naturally, like the grains in the steel. Right. Uh, well, they 
uh, there's a theory that they were trying to reproduce that in another place mm-hmm. and that they came up with pattern welding steel or Damascus steel by using the different alloys and coming up with, you know, folding it and that that was trying to reproduce the woots because um, oh. that's just a specific type of, I'll be honest, I'm, it's how it's made and that that creates it. And like in certain, the, the alloys that are in that when it's being made is what creates that, the crystal structure. Right, right. But um, even more so of reason why they might've done it was um, at the time in, you know, centuries ago, there was a thought that Damascus was more deadly. The Damascus steel was more deadly because when someone would get cut by it, they would likely die from it. Where a normal sword, a plain steel sword, they didn't die. It's they, you know, the, the, they would get a wound, but they might recover. Mm-hmm. Um, and with Damascus, it's got like a texture to it instead of being perfectly smooth. Right, right. So before modern medicine, when if that sword would cut one person and get some blood on it, it'd dry. Yeah. Bacteria would build up and stay in that sword. Oh. That bacteria would now infect the next person. And that would make it more deadly. So it became so more desirable because it was thought to be more deadly. They didn't understand, you know, maybe they yeah, didn't understand nothing this to do exact with, reason. Nothing to do with cutting, huh? So it actually became that the, it transferred that bacteria. Is it, that's one thought that I've heard. That's crazy. I thought it would have been invented by mistake out of necessity. Like, shit, there's an well, army Well, that's coming. part of it, I think. We've only got so many bits of steel. Quick, weld them together and make a sword. You know, I, that's that's how I would have attributed it. But just like, and I think it, it it kind of is that to that extent. I mean, and the Vikings had you know Damascus. And they probably I think were one of the best at making Damascus previously, um, but up until about the seventies of this you know nineteenth or the twentieth century mm-hmm. is really when Damascus actually started really being made and us really understanding the patterns and developing further into real what we see as damascus so it's not that old it's because there's so many styles of it too there's so many different patterns that you can fold into this metal mm-hmm. like what, what's your favorite damascus to make mosaic damascus and okay. it's it's called it's a you know mosaic can be there's a it's a huge spectrum um but it's uh it's it's just a you're you're seeing an ingrain of the billet and it uh like I said, it's just it's wide open on what can be done with it. And if you look oh, up Mosaic wow. Damascus, you can see. Okay, I'm sorry, I'm on your site poking about, and I've just found a uh, Damascus chef's knife with Mosaic Damascus, and it's uh, I see exactly what you mean. That is, that's got to be extremely complicated to make, guys. For those of you listening, it's it's almost like I'm looking at a flower pattern in the blade. Um, but there's, there's it, oh, how do you describe it, Jason? That's incredible. It can be, yeah, it could be, it can be like a flower or like, like a um, tiles. And I mean, there's all kinds of ways to do mosaic Damascus that, you know, they look like basket weaves or. Dude, I'm, I'm going to drop a link to this product in the show notes because it's, it's stunning. I mean, it, I'm looking at a $2,200 kitchen knife. Um, but when you look at it, you can see where every last bit of that 2200 bucks has gone. Like, yeah. if you said, hey, you want to buy a kitchen knife for 2200 bucks, I'd say no. But if you show me this knife and said, would you give me 2200 bucks for it, I'd say, take my money, sir. You know, it's it's stunning. Like, and you, you just start that off with some bits of metal, huh? That's right. Wow. How long does it take as a skill set for a craftsman to learn to do something like that? Because I think you might be selling your skill set short, mate. That's That's some really incredible work. It all depends. I mean, you know, if, you know, it's surprising. Like if you dedicated time to it, I mean, you could be making, some people could be making those kind of knives in several months. Honestly, wow. if you, if you really had the full time dedicated to it, um, you know, maybe a little bit longer. I, we have, uh, some, we have a couple people that have, like I said, that have come to our classes and have come in and they've just spent a lot of time around our shop and helping us with classes, things like that. Mm-hmm. Kind of, and it's amazing to see the progress in a couple of years and they're not doing it full-time. They have full-time jobs. Yeah. And, um, but I mean, again, it takes it, the, they have the, the attitude and the dedication to want to go to make it. 
Right, yeah. right. I mean, you've, um, you've got to have some focus and some commitment on these kind yeah. of things. You can't just... My, for me, knife it. making is not my focus at the moment. You know, it's not a... Like, it's a... I, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's kind of a hobby, you know, for if I wanted to do it and I just don't have the time to dedicate for like even that. So I, I honestly have made a handful of knives personally. And so I'm like, I, uh, I can help teach some people how to make some knives. But. <laughs> what is your forte then? Because I'd imagine from what I've read and the way I've seen you grow uh, over the last couple of years, I'd imagine you spend more time uh, working on the business than actually doing the fulfillment of the orders and stuff. What does yep. your day-to-day -day look like now as, a, as an entrepreneur? It's usually uh, it's a mix of uh, writing up estimates, you know, for our, our sales mm -hmm. and you know, figuring out sometimes of researching how we're going to build something. Um, Cause sometimes it's just figuring out the challenge of how we're going to solve a problem. Um, and then uh, do some design work. So the, some creative design, and then it also just meeting with clients, um, finding out their expectations and, you know, um, doing some measurements. Um, I'm more and more offloading a lot of, you know, of the actual, like measurements and yeah yeah and even the shop drawings i'm doing less and less of the actual shop drawings as they move into the shop and so you're slowly uh slowly replacing yourself um uh, over and over in each critical it, task huh that's the that's the idea <laughs> so how do you guys handle advertising do you kind of run any ads or do you go for more the uh likable attractive character and the uh the, the brand marketing what do, what do you guys I, do I, to generate clients i would say the likable attractive character is the thing that we we focus on i mean we actually don't run any ads mm -hmm. we've spent a little bit on advertising years ago and uh other than the ability to get into some certain networking circles mm -hmm. i would say that's about the the only benefit that it gave us um so I'm not going to say it didn't benefit us at all, right. but it, 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 cause I can attribute some clients to that specifically, but, um, most of what we do is word of mouth referral base right, and, right. you know, and our, our primary clients are contractors. Um, mm. that was so, my next question. I wanted to know who your biggest customer was and, and like who you focused on selling to. So, so yeah, so the, you know, a client, like a contractor who, some of them do two, three homes a year. Some of them do 15. Mm -hmm. um, so it, they're, they're our primary contractor because they're a repeat yeah. business. Yeah, that makes we can, sense. So the more we can nurture them, the better, the more long-term we have. Um, yeah. So one or one or two more contractors, you know, can double our business if they're the right ones. Well, yeah. So. yeah. I mean, it take, and, and those contractors are going to talk to their mates and say, hey, Jason does a real good job with our railings. Go hire him. Yep. You know, that's uh, it costs a lot less to uh, keep current clients happy and ask for referrals than it does to advertise for more clients. And and honestly, that's the answer I wanted out of you. That's the answer I expected. Sure. <laughs> you know, I couldn't imagine uh, I couldn't imagine spending thousands of dollars in targeting ads on uh, on railings and gates. I think that you're doing it the exact right way, dude. Not not for custom work. You know, there, you know, so there's some other companies that do mass scale, mass production. And, you know, they'll do door to door or, or marketing, you know, large scale marketing, but for custom work, it's, it's, you know, too much marketing and I just can't handle the clients, you know? Yeah. yeah it's, it's a, it has to be scalable. That's a good problem to have sometimes. Um, but like, if it's not scalable, uh, ultimately you're just, you're, you're, you're wasting money in, in marketing and shit that you can't fulfill. So, uh, yeah, good job. All right. So I've got a couple more questions for you before we wrap sure. up, Mr. Labrash. Um, yeah, it would be folly of me not to mention your twin, but I should just keep that quiet. It'll be our inside <laughs> joke. Um, but this podcast, just you tag him when you post about I'll, it. I'll tag him. Like, this week's interview with Josh Thomas. <laughs> um, but no, for real, man. Um, this show's aimed at guys like us that are maybe five years or maybe 10 years behind us in business. And you've already kind of lent on how important getting the cash flow management was for you and how uh, influential the book Profit First was. Um, mm -hmm. 
And by the way, those other three books, while I've been interviewing you, I went on Amazon and bought them now. They'll be at my office tomorrow. There you go. <laughs> but, Add them to your stack. <laughs> no, I've been burning through that stack, dude. I mean, awesome. there, there were several months where the stack just grew and nothing got read. Um, but I've been actively, I've got three books in my backpack right now, and I'm just jumping in and out of chapters for them. I, I, I love... Uh, I love learning new stuff. I, I love implementing it. I, I can't ever get enough. But this question is, I want you to think about you five years ago. And I want you to think about you maybe 10 years ago. Um, what's the one piece of advice besides the cash flow that you would want to turn around and give to yourself or somebody like you that's coming up and, and going through some of the things that you went through? Don't be able to, or don't be afraid to charge what you're worth. Like, that's so good like you know like because especially as a contractor like mm -hmm. you know you're always kind of being compared to other other client other companies and yeah. things like that you know and and uh you know especially when but when you have you know specialty services i mean that it's it's not worth fighting or competing you know out mm -hmm. you know trying to race to the bottom it's just not you can't cut your and, prices to profitability it doesn't work like and that. and i mean i i felt like we never really even did that um so much but even still i would still tell myself that like you know you should be charging more how, <laughs> you know? Like, because, how deep into it though were you before you got comfortable with that because like you know for us it was what 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 made us change our pricing was figuring out how much money we wanted to make and then figuring out what clients could pay that much for the services and then going and getting those clients. Because when you have a client that wants to pay $1,000 for a video, um, but when my cost to get four guys on site is between three and $4,000 a day, those numbers don't add up. But now, mm -hmm. I, now I have clients that pay fifteen thousand for a video, and you know we're on site two days, and there's there's profit in there to be made. Mm -hmm. You know, like at what point did you say, you know, wait a second, um, my cost is X, therefore my revenue must be Y. You know, I don't know at the, what exact point, because um, I mean, I, I even still, I still have to push myself to say no we need to be mm -hmm. profitable i mean well, the mistake we make is not is, is not charging for our time it's charging for the materials it's charging for the job but then you forget there's there's the quote there's putting all the shit together there's the fulfillment there's the delivery there's the customer service we forget all that you know yeah did you have a watershed moment where you finally snapped and realized that that was that was the shit you know i'm not sure if i actually had a, a specific like i said i don't know if i have a specific one I, it's just it's you know, part of it, you know, you just get it when you're, especially like for us, when we're, we get a big backlog is, is like, you know, you, people come to you and they're wanting like, Oh, I want a deal or something like that. And it's just like, look, I've already got enough work to handle. Like yeah. I, why, why would I take on a job where I'm losing money mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, or, or, you know, just going to break even. So I need to like, you know, like if you know, you need to make it make sense that like when you are, bringing in something you're profitable because yeah. i stay busy and lose mm. money there's no point i'd rather be busy looking for profitable deals yeah I mean, and and the problem is though when you're an entrepreneur when you're starting out when you when you're trying to eat and you see a 500 hundred dollar job and you're like let me go get that 500 dollars, and you don't realize that it's cost you 600 dollars to do so you're negative mm -hmm. 100 bucks plus it cost you the time that you took to do it so you're negative all those hours as well and i think that's where a lot of us struggle is a genuine appreciation of our actual expenses and what it costs to run a job and once you understand that your pricing falls in line a lot lot quicker mm -hmm. yeah so, i think so man i regret that we are up on time jason like um it has been a wonderful hour hanging out with you um and you know we've been friends uh, a couple of years but this is like the longest talk we've ever had and I'm, I'm super glad that i got to know you um before i let you go mate um tell us and tell everybody listening where they can follow along with you and your wonderful wonderful ironworks business grizzly iron inc uh, on the internet man where are you at 
are we're at a uh, grizzlyiron.com spelled just like the grizzly bear grizzly mm-hmm. iron no e's <laughs> and then uh 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 i'm on instagram and facebook both under jason labrash awesome well dude i will put those links up in the show notes and uh, i will figure out a way to get the picture of that beautiful um beautiful mosaic damascus uh, chef's knife online and guys if you see that picture it's 2200 knife um you better buy it before i save up 2200 bucks or I'm... or we increase the price <laughs> <laughs> you gotta add the value increase the price um but guys that was jason labrash with uh grizzly iron inc please go check out his stuff Jason, thank you so much for coming on the show. So it's been my absolute pleasure. And uh, thank you for sharing with us. And uh, man, I just want to watch Grizzly Iron grow and grow and grow, man. It's, uh, it's been an absolute having pleasure me. having you. All right, guys, that was Jason Labrash. Do me a favor, run along and follow his socials and show him some love over at Grizzly Iron because those guys really are making some super, super special stuff. And uh, if you've enjoyed the show, do me a favor, screenshot it, uh, post it on your Instagram, post it in your stories, throw us a shout out. And as always, you can follow us at Small Business Surgeon. All right, that's it from me. I will see you guys probably on Friday with Friday Fire. We'll see how the week shakes out. You'll be good. Stay safe. This has been the Small Business Surgeon Podcast. If you've made it this far, you clearly like it. So go on iTunes and leave us a five-star review. This helps people find the show and spread the good word. Share with friends and follow us at Small Business Surgeon on Facebook and Instagram. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you for your follow-up next week. The Small Business Surgeon was recorded at Texas Media Foundry in historic downtown Bryan, Texas. Check them out at txfoundry.com or on social media at txfoundry. Thanks for tuning in.